to Innocence Advocate Stephen Story. I'm your host, Jennifer Barlow. This is episode six, The Aggressor. Last week, I covered the DNA that was introduced in trial and the lack of connection between the DNA and the actual crime. The DNA showed that Stephen was a neighbor to Kristen, but it didn't prove that he killed her. On this episode, we are going to discuss some of the potential suspects in this case, other people that the police should have looked into further, and people the police simply let go. I wanted to start by saying the age-old concept we've probably all heard before in different contexts. Just because something is easy doesn't mean it is right. Now, I know there are things that made Stephen someone the police were interested in. He was a 40-year-old single man who lived next door to the victim. His lifestyle was strange to others, and he was familiar with the neighborhood. The police use this information to craft their opinions and start to paint a picture. But the problem is, you can't just paint a picture when someone is facing a life in prison. You need more. You need proof. And that proof has to be beyond a reasonable doubt. The detectives did not have that with Stephen. So as much as they wanted it to be him, as easy as it would seem, they didn't meet their obligation. Stephen was not the only male who lived in the vicinity of Kristen's home or had familiarity with her neighborhood. The man who threatened to rape and kill Kristen and the man who confessed to involvement in the crime both lived in the neighborhood as well. They had just as much knowledge and access, but neither of them could ever produce an alibi, and they were never able to tell the police where they were on the night of the murder. Before getting into those individuals specifically, there were a few names thrown out during the course of the trial, almost as if they offered the detectives and the prosecutor a chance to say, see, we did investigate this case, we did look beyond Stephen. But when it came down to it, they left so many leads open-ended and they ruled out people with minimal effort. The people they focused on in trial were people who were less likely to be involved. But they tried to steer clear of the people who could have actually done it. But it's a tactic, I'm sure. If the detectives investigate and they uncover information, then they have to turn that information over to the prosecutor and the defense. But if they don't investigate certain things, then they don't have to worry about turning anything over. If they had actually investigated with as much effort as they put into Stephen, we would have a lot more information to use in order to solve this crime. But I think they were truly concerned about what they might actually find if they did that. Sal Cayoza was mentioned several times. He was in his 30s at the time of Kristen's death. He lived two houses away from her, and he had many encounters with the police for mostly drug-related issues. Mr. Cayoza's DNA was taken in the first two days of the investigation. His alibi was that he was with his mother on the night of the murder, but no indication was presented in trial to corroborate that alibi. It wasn't specifically stated whether they asked if he was with his mother or they looked into his whereabouts. But his DNA was not on the button, so therefore he was not important to them. Manuel Morales' name came up in the investigation because a fellow inmate, James Gallagher, reported that Manuel Morales had stated twice that he killed Kristen Scarabelli. He supposedly told this inmate that he killed her in a car near the Northport dump, dumped her body in a bush by her house, and then burned the vehicle. Detective Mercer interviewed this man with Detective Sergeant Doyle. Detective Mercer testified that Manuel Morales stated that he never said anything about killing Kristen to anyone. He stated that the only reason he recognized her was because he frequented a pizza shop owned by her brother, which had a shrine of her inside. When asked if he killed her, he said no. I find it interesting that all it took was him saying no. Did they look for a car that was burned at the dump? Did they question Kristen's brother who owned the pizza shop if this man was truly irregular? None of that information about what they actually did to rule him out was presented in trial. Another acquaintance of Kristen told the police that they overheard a bar conversation in which a man was stated as having killed a girl on Cedar Road. 
Detective Mercer ruled this out as a rumor after interviewing some people who knew the named individual. However, he could not speak to the individual personally as he had died in a motorcycle accident two months after Kristen's death. Although these names were used in trial, they were not the only names in question during the investigation. I came into possession of a photocopy of some of Detective Legaze's notebooks that were kept during the course of the initial investigation. Three people were mentioned in a suspicious manner in just one of his notebooks, but they were not discussed at all in the trial. The detective was looking for someone named Nick or Nikki. He wrote in his notebook that two of Kristen's associates said that a subject by the name of Nick had called Kristen three weeks prior to her death, that he was 24 or 25 years old, that Kristen had told these two associates about Nick, and they suggested that Mara might have more information about him. On another page of notes, he wrote that another friend reported that Kristen also told them about a phone call from someone named Nikki. The name is never mentioned again in the notebook, and he was never brought up in trial. Who is Nikki? Why was Detective Legaza trying to find him? Why were Nikki's phone calls to Kristen continually referenced in these notes? Obviously, these phone calls were standing out to people, but we never got any information as to why. Additionally, in his notebook, there's a reference to a co-worker of Kristen's named Ken. He had been working with Kristen for three months before her death. He was a regular at a bar, and when a report about Kristen's death came on the news, he told another gentleman at the bar, quote, She was my Madonna. Detective Legaze's notes indicated that Ken was originally from California, he went to Kristen's wake, and there was nothing unusual about him. Ken is never mentioned again in the notes, even though he supposedly made that strange comment. And finally, in the notebook, there is a reference to another individual named John. Detective Legaza made a note that this subject had been saying he had information about the murder. The detective noted that John was, in his words, not all there, and the information that John had, again in the detective's words, didn't fit to what they knew. Not only is this individual absent from the remainder of the notebook and the trial, but the information that he gave to the detective is not referenced either. This is not the first time we will see the detectives rule someone out by using words and phrases such as nut and not all there. But that didn't apply to Stephen, the one with an actual mental illness, a diagnosed, illness. I want to know what information this man gave them that they determined was different from what they knew. Because where I am sitting, even all these years later, they clearly didn't know that much, and they never actually found out what truly happened on the night of the murder. Being that this is not the only notebook that was used between all of the detectives in the course of a five and a half year investigation, it begs the question, who else is mentioned in their notebooks and what was the result of their potential involvement? Were they excluded because they distracted from the narrative of Stephen's supposed guilt? Were they actually investigated? Like I said, several names were thrown out to distract the jury, but there were two names that became the focus of the trial. The first of those two was James Marr. James Marr was a teenager at the time of Kristen's murder, but he already had an extensive criminal background for his age. Prior to Kristen's death, James had been dating one of her best friends, Kara. According to Kristen's friends, Kristen and James openly disliked one another. James made violent and life-threatening claims against Kristen. After being questioned by detectives, he was unable to provide an alibi for the night of the murder because he was on cocaine. Detectives would quickly rule out James, a very likely improbable suspect. But in the course of their testimonies, they would not state any exact reason as to why they ruled him out. Once again, making it all too clear that Stephen was their focus, 
leaving my family to wonder whether they investigated James as much as they should have. Testimony from Detective Mercer would conclude that James had threatened to rape and kill Kristen over a girlfriend, Kara. It wasn't really discussed in trial, but the focus of the statement was clearly that it was an aggressive threat, but that it is also important because of the manner in which Kristen's body was found with her pants off. There was no sign of sexual assault, but it still stands out to me based on the specific threat that James made. The first focus of the cross-examination of Mara, Kristen's best friend, was on James. During this line of questioning, Stephen's lawyer established that James was a violent individual. A few weeks before Kristen's murder, James had been accused of rape in another town, and during the time of the trial, he was in jail for another crime. Mara made it clear that she had personally witnessed James acting physically violent toward her and Kristen's friend, Kara. She stated that they were often fighting physically and that she and all of her friends, including Kristen, had spoken openly to Kara regarding their disapproval and dislike of James. When Stephen's lawyer asked Mara if James had ever been inside Kristen's house, she responded, possibly. When asked if Kristen would have let him into her home, Mara responded, if he came with Kara. And when Stephen's lawyer asked if Kristen would have opened the door for him if he went on his own without Kara to talk to Kristen, Mara responded, she might. Mr. Soshnik showed Mara a photograph, a ripped-up photo that had been taken out of Kristen's garbage can during the initial investigation and pieced back together. Mara identified that person in the photo as James Marr. The photo is of him sleeping. A question that we never received an answer to was why a torn-up picture of James was found in Kristen's bedroom garbage, a point that seems important to the investigation but was barely referenced in the trial. I was surprised to see that our lawyer hardly mentioned the photo during the first trial. It wasn't until later that I think I discovered why. For over eight years and through one whole trial, that torn-up photo from Kristen's bedroom garbage can had been labeled as a photo of Kevin Karpowitz, Kristen's friend, her crush, and the person who drove her to school each day. Three years after the photo was collected from the garbage, the true identity of that man was established. It was a photo of James. When the detective who originally labeled the photo was cross-examined regarding the incident, he stated that he simply based it off of the information he had received during his investigation and that he had not further investigated who was in the picture. Even though the identity of the young man in the photo had eventually been discovered, nobody bothered to change the labeling. These seemingly small errors made by the detectives have the power to alter narratives, change the course of investigations, and plant seeds in the jurors' minds. Through Mara's testimony, the photo was finally labeled correctly, and we learned that James Marr, who was violent and openly angry with Kristen, may have been allowed into her home and was the young man in the ripped-up photo. Throughout the investigation, police continued to state that James's threat toward Kristen was months prior to her death, which for them meant that he was less likely to have committed the crime, even though Stephen's lawyer made it a point to ask them if there was a statute of limitation on threats, to which they said there was not. However, it seems unlikely that Kristen's trash was nine months old, further emphasizing the fact that at the time of her death, a connection still existed between James and Kristen. In fact, Detective Rain testified that when he spoke with a friend of Kristen's, Karen, she reported that the Thursday prior to the murder, Kristen told Karen and a few of their other friends that James was still out to get her for intervening between him and Kara. Just three days before her death, Kristen was allegedly still talking about James's anger towards her. The next friend to testify in the early stages of the trial was Kara herself. She testified that she had dated James for 11 months and broke up with him at the end of summer in 1995, six months before Kristen's death. 
She stated that James was physically abusive with her. Kara testified that Kristen had never expressed a fear of James, but that Kristen and other friends had openly disapproved of their relationship on several occasions. According to Kara, James used cocaine and marijuana, and she categorized him as a drug addict in 1995 and 1996. She testified that he had a violent temper. Kara also testified during her cross-examination that James had been with her at Kristen's house on previous occasions, and there was no hesitation on Kristen's behalf to let him into her home. She continued to testify that Kristen was not scared of James, so she would have opened the door for him. Kristen's friends were not the only individuals to inform police of James's threat. Her older brother, Peter, also reported the threat to police in the early days of the investigation. Although several people close to Kristen were naming the same individual, it took detectives five months to finally go and question James for themselves. By the time Detective Legaza and Detective Mercer spoke to James in October of 1996, they had to do so in a correctional facility where he was being held for another crime. However, in May of 1996, he was a free man. Additionally, Kristen's friend Kara stated to police that she witnessed a scratch on James's face the day after the murder occurred. The scratch was drawn in the detective's notebook as it was described. By the time the detectives actually spoke to James five months later, the scratch was gone, but they testified that they did not even ask him about it. Before their visit to see James, both detectives were aware of the reports of his violent tendency as well as a completion of their own background check, which yielded a similar story. In regards to his prior history, the detectives said that he had a few minor ones in Suffolk County and he had three or four felonies in New York City that came from the same incident. Detective Mercer testified to being aware of James's record but that that did not influence his belief of the possibility that he was involved in this crime. When Detective Mercer was asked whether or not this knowledge of James's past behavior toward Kristen, coupled with his threat and violent history, made him a possible suspect, he testified, in his words, the totality of everything I knew about James, no. At this point in the investigation, the totality of the information they knew about Stephen was that he was strange, that he stared out of his window, that he rarely left his house, that he didn't like people, and that he lied about where he was on the night of the murder. But still, he was their prime suspect, even though they knew very little about him. What they knew about James at this time was that he had a violent history. He had threatened to rape and kill Kristen. He lived in the neighborhood, he had been to her home before, and he may have had a scratch on his face the day after the crime. I mean, I'm no detective, but regardless of personal opinion, how could they not have believed he could be involved? The question wasn't, did you think at this point in time he did it? It was, could he have been a potential suspect or a possible suspect? And they still said no. This was, of course, before they knew about his own lie and about his photo being in her trash, which is information that just adds more to the likelihood that he could have been involved. Stephen was not the only one who lied but he is the only one whose mental illness may have perpetuated that lie. Detective Mercer and Legaza both testified that they spent only an hour and a half in their interview at the correctional facility with James. As I was reading the transcripts, I kept waiting for what he said in their conversation that made the detectives sure he was not involved. I turned page after page thinking, okay, it's coming, but it never did. The following exchange between Stephen's lawyer and Detective Legaza emphasizes the lack of investigative effort put forth in dealing with James. Stephen's lawyer asked Detective Legaza, So what you're saying is that you heard James wanted to rape and kill Kristen, but when you interviewed James in the upstate correctional facility, he said, that's hogwash. I haven't seen her in nine months. Is that correct? And the detective said, 
Correct. Plus, he said more than that. So Stephen's lawyer asked, and you believe James Marr when he said, this is all hogwash, correct? Detective Legeza said, 100%, I believed him. So Stephen's lawyer continued, when you spoke to James, did you ask him, where were you at about 11 p.m. on May 12, 1996? The detective said that he did, and his lawyer asked, what did he tell you? The detective said, he was out of his house all night high. Stephen's lawyer continued, and did he tell you if he was with somebody else when he was out of the house all night high? To which the detective responded, yes, he stated he was with Kristen Burke. Later questioning of Miss Burke would conclude that James had lied. She told detectives that she spoke to him on the phone that night, an hour before the crime, but that she was not with him at the time of the crime. So Stephen's lawyer continues. He says, the point is, he admitted he was out of the house all night. He told you he was high on cocaine. Did you ask him where he was if he wasn't killing Kristen that night? And the detective answered, he didn't know where he was. So Stephen's lawyer says, now let me get this straight. You asked him, Mr. Marr, you denied doing this homicide. You say you didn't go over to Kristen's house and kill her. You didn't drag her body 500 feet and leave her for dead. So where were you? And he told you, I don't know. Is that true? And the detective answered, yes. So Stephen's lawyer asked, at the end of your interview with James, James Marr was cleared and Stephen Manolis remained your suspect, correct? To which the detective answered, correct. Further questioning of the detectives elaborated that James had told them he did not like Kristen and that he did not attend her wake because he didn't want to be phony. During the questioning of James by detectives, he was asked to give a DNA sample to which he refused. He told the detectives that his reasoning was because he did not want his DNA to go into a national database. Both detectives testified that his refusal to give a DNA sample did not heighten their suspicions about him as a suspect. Even though they had several people pointing to James, he had threatened Kristen, he lied, he openly disliked her, we have his ripped up photo in her garbage, he was never considered a suspect. That doesn't even make sense to me. How did the police really think that he was being 100% believable? Their words, 100%. It's interesting that they had way more motive and connection to Kristen with James, and he was the exact opposite of a suspect. But they had nothing against Stephen, no connection between Kristen and Stephen, and he was 100% guilty to them. It just doesn't make sense. Their responses seemed hypocritical. James's alibi continued to be that he did not know where he was on the night of May 12th or who he was with. His reason for the lack of memory was because he was high on cocaine. The information that we do have comes from his girlfriend at the time, who he attempted to use as an alibi but failed. She told detectives that she spoke to James on the phone at 10 o'clock p.m. on the night of the 12th, and she did not talk to him again after that point. The murder, according to reports from neighbors, occurred at 11 o'clock p.m. James Marr only lived a half a mile away from Kristen's home. Stephen's lawyer asked Detective Mercer if James Marr was home at 10 o'clock p.m. and left his home, which is only a half a mile away from Kristen's, could he have made it to her home with enough time to commit this murder? Detective Mercer responded in testimony, he could have made it to that house, yes. No real reason for clearing James was presented at trial other than that the detectives believed everything he said, even stating, Everything else seemed to be reliable that he was giving us. However, he lied about being with his girlfriend on the night of the 12th, so not everything he said was truthful. Detective Legeza's convoluted and confusing response as to why James Marr was cleared reads like this in the transcript. He was, it was the conclusion of the interview of how we interviewed him that gave us that he was, had nothing to do with this murder. 
that response doesn't even make sense. It's almost like he's being evasive, trying to be careful about what he says and how he says it. After that initial interview with James, which took place five months after the crime, he was not contacted again until 2003, when Detective Mercer reached out to his mother to contact James and ascertain if he was willing to give a DNA sample at that point in time. Detective Legeza spoke to James over the phone and told him that his name would come up in the trial and they would like to have his DNA to eliminate him. James said he would contact an attorney and revisit the conversation, but again, he did not want his DNA going into the National databank. When James was contacted again before trial, Detective Mercer testified that he told him he was sure he had nothing to do with this. He was positive of that. And he just wanted his DNA to be able to show that his DNA didn't come up in the investigation. After assuring James that his DNA would not go into a national databank and would only be used to rule him out in the investigation, James agreed to meet detectives in Virginia on March 26, 2003, seven years after the initial interview, and give his DNA. James's sample was used to rule him out as being a match to the DNA on the button, but understanding that the button was never linked to the crime, how does that truly rule him out? Stephen's lawyer asked this vital question during trial. Detective Mercer, if the button had nothing to do with this murder, a comparison of anybody's DNA to that button would not shed any light on who did the murder. Can we agree on that? Detective Mercer responded, I'll agree with you on that. Detective Mercer testified that during his conversation with James, his initial conversation, James said that he spoke to two detectives the day after the murder. He did not know their names, but he described their physical appearance. He stated that his friend Kathy called him and told him that the police had just been to her house and were going to stop by his house as well. During the cross-examination, Stephen's lawyer wanted to know why those two detectives were never tracked down in order to see what information James had given them at those early stages in the investigation when this was still a missing persons case. The detectives were asked if they ever tried to track down those detectives. They did not. They were asked if they ever were in contact with Kathy, the friend that apparently warned James that these detectives were coming. They said that they did not. And then Stephen's lawyer asked, would it be difficult to find out if you really wanted to find out that information? They said, probably not. They didn't even care to look into that information. They didn't bother to get hold of those detectives to see what James told them the day after the crime. What information did he have? What lies did he tell? Did he have a scratch on his face? The investigating detectives testified that they talked to James that one time and that was it. What kind of investigation is that, especially when you have so many things indicating that he could be involved? His home was never searched. His car was never searched. His family members were not questioned. He wasn't watched for five and a half years. Stephen was the suspect, the only suspect in the eyes of the detectives. Therefore, they did not investigate James to their fullest potential. They did not meet their fulfillment of duty. And although his DNA was not found on the button, the sample he provided could not rule him out from a telephone call. On May 13th of 1996, at 2 o'clock in the morning, three hours after Kristen's murder, someone left an anonymous voicemail through the telepersonnel dating service to a mailbox belonging to Mary O'Rourke. The caller's message said, I need help. I just killed a girl. The bitch resisted and they haven't found the body yet. I need to talk to someone. On Sergeant Doyle's cross-examination, he made it clear what little effort was put into leaving no stone unturned in this investigation. He was asked by Stephen's lawyer, do you think if there were phone records showing that James made this call to Mary O'Rourke's mailbox at about two o'clock in the morning on May 13th, 
that would be an important clue in this case? Sergeant Doyle responded, yes. The point is further emphasized when Stephen's lawyer asks this question. As the supervisor of this investigation, did you make any effort, and I mean any effort, to get James's phone records with respect to May 13th of 1996? Sergeant Doyle responded, no, I did not. Sergeant Doyle went on to testify that James referred to Kristen and her friends as bitches, the same descriptive word used in the voicemail. Something as routine as obtaining phone records from any people of interest on May 13th of 1996 at 2 a.m. may have been key to this investigation. But Sergeant Doyle didn't do that. He only stated, in his words, another mistake in hindsight, I think we should have received more telephone records. But they didn't, and we may never have the proof that that incriminating call came from James, but what we do have is the knowledge that Stephen did not make that call. Furthermore, we have the knowledge that James was violent, he openly disliked Kristen, he threatened her life, he was reported as having a scratch on his face the day after the crime, his photo was ripped up in her bedroom trash, he was a drug addict, he lived in close proximity, he did not have an alibi, and he had been inside of her house before. James's home was not searched for anything associated with Kristen or for a shirt of the Hathaway brand. Kristen was not afraid of James. If he had shown up at her home on the night of May 12th, she may have opened the door for him. This call to the dating service was not the only suspicious call in this case. As recorded in Detective Legaza's notebook, on May 11th, 1996, at 1.25 a.m., just one day before Kristen's murder, someone called the Scarabelli home. Mrs. Scarabelli identified a male voice who called twice. In the first call, she reported the individual asking in a clear voice, could I speak to Kristen? In the second call, the person simply said Kristen and hung up. The phone records trace this call back to the offices of a cleaning company. As indicated in the notebook, the office manager and some employees were contacted, but nobody admitted to using the phones and nobody was supposed to be in the office at that time. Detective Legaza made a note to obtain a list of all employees as well as the name of the company used to install the phones. The matter is not resolved in his notes, nor was this ever mentioned in the trial. Why wouldn't the detectives try harder to track down the caller? These calls are extremely suspicious. One, because of the timing. It's just one day before the crime. Two, because of the actual crime, 1.25 in the morning. And three, because they came from a cleaning company. Who made these mysterious calls to Kristen just one day before her death? Phone records indicate again that Stephen did not make those calls but the person who did was never tracked down. Or they were tracked down, but the detectives did not want that information to come out. The calls illuminate unanswered questions left unresolved by the detectives and the prosecutor in this case, making it seem as though they cared little about leads or tips that didn't enforce Stephen's supposed involvement in the crime. There are a lot of unanswered questions in this case, but three things are clear. People were easily ruled out with virtually no investigation. Leads were left as dead ends and James Marr had motive and opportunity to kill Kristen. However, he isn't the only potential suspect the police ignored. Someone else confessed. Tune in next week to hear about the confession, and also the police officer who perjured himself on the stand. Until next time, keep fighting for the innocent.